Uno momento. There we are. Okay, we're there. Um, thank you, guys. Um, so I had a chance recently to spend a weekend with uh, Quinn and Clint, and really looking forward to hearing from them next year. God is really going to do something beautiful there. He's sowing really great seed in Clemens, North Carolina, to start house churches there in the neighborhoods there, and uh, do hope that you'll take Noah's encouragement and pray about whether or not God might have you be a part in some way through prayer or even if you're mobile and work from home, even moving to be in one of those neighborhoods in, in Clemens. So exciting times. Um, this morning we are going to wrap up the book of Colossians um, as we look back through it together. And I'd like to start with two stories that reveal something about who we are and are going to shape the way that we look at the book of Colossians this morning. The first story is about the loss of something important, um, or really overlooking something important uh, that's overlooked because it's overlooked in the everyday. So there's a customs officer at the border. He observes a truck pulling up to the border. Suspicious, he orders the driver out, searches the vehicle. He pulls off the panels, bumpers, and wheel cases, but finds not a single scrap of contraband. Whereupon, still suspicious, but at a loss to know where else to search, he waves the driver through. The next week, the same driver arrives. Again, the official is suspicious, and he searches, and again, he finds nothing illicit. Over the years, the official tries full body searches, x-rays, and sonar, anything he can think of. And each week, the same man drives up, but no mysterious cargo ever appears. And each time, reluctantly, the customs man waves the driver on. Finally, after many years, the officer is about to retire. The driver pulls up and he goes, I know, I know you're, a you're a smuggler, the customs officer says. Don't bother denying it. But I can't figure out what you've been smuggling all these years. I'm about to retire. I swear to you, I can do you no harm. Won't you please tell me what you've been smuggling? Trucks, the driver says. <laughs> so sometimes I, I tell you that story just because sometimes I think we miss what's most important Maybe even something wonderful uh, when it's right before our eyes precisely because it's right before our eyes every day, day in and day out. There it is, right there. And because of our familiarity to it, we can't see it. And I, and I think this happens to, to Christians regarding Christ. He's there every day in all of his splendor, but somehow we miss him. Somehow we overlook him. Maybe our eye is drawn to lesser things. Maybe the familiarity of who he is causes us to lose sight of him right there in our everyday life. And so somehow we go through our days and we, we miss Jesus. There's a second story. It's not really a story. It's more of a reality. Uh, writer Ryan Fran writes about it. He says, most of us regularly lose things. Keys, wallets, TV remotes, glasses, and phones. Some of us are more prone to misplacing things than others. He says it's not surprising that men are twice as likely to lose their phones than women. One study concluded that the average person misplaces nine things a day and spends an average of 15 minutes every day looking for the things that they have lost. Why does this happen, he says. What's the psychology and science behind it? He says it comes down to a breakdown of attention and memory. When we misplace our belongings, we fail to activate the part of our brain responsible for encoding what we're doing. 
the hippocampus part of our brain is responsible for taking a snapshot and preserving the memory in a set of neurons that can be activated later. We lose things when we do not have a clear reference point of when or where we put down objects like our keys or our glasses or our phones. And again, I think, I think we, we do this kind of thing with Jesus. We misplace Him. We forget that He's there. We forget who is there. We misplace Him in our everyday lives. He's there, but we cannot find Him. He's there with us, but we've forgotten who it is that's there with us. And so it feels like we live at the intersection of these two stories in our spiritual lives most of our days, the inter intersection of distraction and forgetfulness street. And so today, I want to try to push back against those two realities. I want us to slow down and be mindful of what God has been saying to us. He has been speaking to us through the book of Colossians over the past two months together on Sunday mornings. So my goal today is really not to review the book in terms of its content. If, if you'd like that, Mark Lederbach did a great job of reviewing the book during his uh, sermon a couple weeks ago, the Oreo Sermon. And if you haven't got to hear the Oreo sermon, you can go back and listen to that on our website. But rather than review the content, I just want to help you remember what God's been saying to you. Because God has been speaking to you in the last two months. I want to help us remember what should be our takeaways from the book of Colossians. Um, to do that, uh, I want to ask the same two foundational Bible study questions that Quinn and Clint ask people when they sit around their living room table. What have I learned about God, specifically Jesus, because that's the focus of Colossians primarily, and what does it mean for me to follow him? And we're going to look back through the book of Colossians through the lens of those two questions today. Won't be our normal shaped sermon because our goal is more remembering than learning new things uh, today. Um, so we're going to watch a short video. We're going to read a good bit of scripture. We're going to have time to reflect and to pray. We're going to sing. Um, all of this to help us remember what God has been saying to us through his word in the book of Colossians. If, if you're a guest today, uh, you may be wondering, oh, oh dang, uh, I'm gonna we're going to review a book I haven't read. That doesn't sound particularly helpful. But, but I want you to know uh, that you are here because the sovereign Lord of the universe brought you here. And, and if you will hear it, this morning through our look back at this book, book that maybe you have never even read, um, you're going to hear Jesus invite you to trust him and follow him. Um, that's why you're here. I hope you'll listen for his kind invitation as we walk through the book together. So you're welcome to find your way in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Uh, we'll be bouncing around in different verses there. The verses that we'll use will be on the screens. But I invite you also to look at, at your own Bibles uh, as we go through it. So as you find your way there, let's pray together. Lord, we ask for mercy and kindness uh, because you are merciful and kind. And so it's right for us to ask that of you this morning that you might um, help us remember what we may have already forgotten 
what you have said to us. Help us to delight in it, to be faithful in it, to hear it fresh, and to walk out of this place willing to do that which you, our great Lord, are calling us to be. So have that mercy on us now by your spirit and your word, we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Colossians is a New Testament letter written principally by the Apostle Paul, the legendary first century Christian missionary and church planter. He wrote it from prison to a little church in a place that's now um, modern Turkey called Colossae. And it, it was a little church. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright um, hypothesizes that it might have just been 20 people or less in the church that received this letter. And this little church was pressed by false teaching that caused Paul to write a really Christ-exalting letter in response. And so let's dive into our first question to help us remember what God has been saying to us through this really important New Testament letter. That question is, uh, what have I learned of God or Christ especially? Because in New Testament, um, in Colossians, the spotlight has been on Jesus. What have I learned about Jesus from Colossians? Not necessarily learned as in new stuff that you've never heard before, though that, that could have been the case. Um, Colossians is full of amazing insights about Jesus, but likely you'll be remembering something that maybe you've heard before, but it took on fresh importance, or it needs to take on fresh importance for you. Either way, what did you learn about our Lord Jesus that you sense God would have you think more about, treasure more, study more, pray about more, worship Jesus more about in the days that are ahead? And to help us begin remembering the portrait Paul paints of Jesus in this little letter. Uh, I'd like us to watch again a little short video from that great Christ hymn of chapter one. Watch this little video together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became 
Prime Minister. So if there is a word that captures what the New Testament is teaching, especially the book of Colossians, it's teaching about who Jesus is. It might be that word, preeminent. Uh, I like it, superior to or notable above all others. And in this little section, Paul points out Jesus' preeminence in three truly beautiful and powerful ways. I'd like us to remember them together. He says that Jesus is Lord up there, right? He's preeminent over all other spiritual authorities. He made them, Paul says, in verse 16 of the first chapter. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus made the spiritual beings of the world. And he is at the cross. He was victorious over those that opposed him. In chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we need fear no demonic or spiritual power because Jesus is greater. We need not consult or serve them because Jesus is greater. And he's greater Paul's going to say, because he is God. Paul makes this point over and over again in, verse, in chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In chapter 2, in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Paul says, he is Lord up there over all spiritual powers and beings. He also says he's Lord out there, right? Jesus is also preeminent not just over spiritual forces, but over all of creation. In verse 15 of the first chapter, that hymn that we just heard read, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I count at least seven times in different ways in these three verses, or these four verses, that Paul says, Jesus made it all, and he is over all. He is the Lord of all creation, all of it. Just think about it with me. He's the Lord over 435,000 species of plants, including bamboo, which is the fastest growing plant on earth. The current record is an astonishing rate of 35 inches a day. That's almost three feet. That's astonishing, especially when you consider that's faster than kudzu. That is a fast growing plant. He's Lord over eight point, at least 8.7 million species of animals. There could be as many as 100 million species. We know of 1.5 million, and they add 13,000 organisms every year to the list. As part of that, he's Lord of the African buffalo, 
whose herds decide which way to travel by voting. And only the women buffaloes are allowed to vote <laughs> because the guys won't ask for help about direction. So it's a thing. He's lord over 33,000 species of fish including starfish and jellyfish, even though neither of them are actually fish. He's lord over 11,000 species of birds, and that is a murmuration of starlings that you're looking at there. He's the lord of more than 200 species of owls who have no eyeballs. They have something more like eye tubes, which is why they have to turn their heads the crazy way that owls turn their heads. He's lord over your DNA. If you unraveled all the DNA in your body, it would span 34 billion miles. It would reach to Pluto, which is 2.66 billion miles away, and back six times your DNA in your body. He's lord of the more than 600 miles of hair you will grow in an average lifetime. 600 miles. And he has numbered every single strand. He has lured over 900,000 species of insects, including 5,000 species of dragonflies. In many cultures, it's considered very good luck if a dragonfly lands on your head, probably because they eat hundreds of mosquitoes every day, and so to have a dragonfly around is a really good thing. He's the lord of approximately 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. I may not be saying that right. The number looks like this, 200 with a boatload of zeros. That's more than all the grains of sand on earth, scientists tell us. He's lord over something called dark matter. That's not actually a picture of dark matter because you can't see dark matter. And evidently it makes up 95% of our world. So we cannot see and know virtually nothing about 95% of the world that God has made and that Jesus is lord of. As we're very aware these days, he's lord of hurricanes. You know, if you measure the kinetic energy of, of the wind velocity of a hurricane alone, a single mature hurricane can equal about half of our entire planet's capability of producing electricity. If you measure it in terms of rainfall, a hurricane releases the force of 10,000 atomic bombs over an area about 413 miles wide. Jesus is Lord of all creation. All things were made by him and through him, and for him. This world and all that is in it belongs to him. And everywhere you go, everything you see, or smell, or hear, or touch, all things were made by him, and through him, and for him. Professor Douglas Moo says, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei, gravity would cease to work, the planets would not stay in their orbits. He is Lord up there, and he is Lord out there, and Paul says he is Lord in here. Jesus is preeminent in the church. In verse 18 of the first chapter, he says it plainly. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is head of the church. 
His will is supreme. His ways are to be followed. His name is to be honored. He alone is to be worshiped and supremely adored. This is because of his great redemptive work on the cross where Jesus purchased the church to be his own. And Paul describes the rescuing work of Jesus in so many beautiful ways in Colossians. Just listen to them. In verse 13 of the first chapter, he has delivered us, God has, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus, and Jesus is now our King. In him, in verse 14, it says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One of my favorite stories about forgiveness is told by author John Ortberg, and he says, in May 2009, my family was in Azusa, California, because one of our kids was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. My wife, Nancy, was going to speak at the commencement ceremonies, so she and I were invited to a special gathering of about 50 people people graduating from, from the graduating class of 50 years ago, and a few faculty members were there. During the gathering, John Wallace, who was the president of APU, brought out three students who were graduating that year and told us that for the next two years, they were going to serve the poorest of the poor in India. And these three students thought they were just there to be commissioned and sent out with a blessing, which they were, but then something happened that they did not know was coming. John turned to them and said, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor who is so moved by what you're going doing that he has given a gift to this university in your name on your behalf. And John turned to the first student and said, you are forgiven your debt of $105,000. The kid immediately starts to cry. John turns to the next student, you're forgiven your debt of $70,000. And then he turns to the third student, you are forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students had no idea this was coming. They were just ambushed by grace, blown away that somebody they don't even know would pay their debt. The whole room was in tears, he said, because their debt had been forgiven, fully forgiven, and far more than a six-figure college debt has been forgiven you and me. Paul writes again about it in chapter 2. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. And by that forgiveness, we who were dead to God have been made alive together with him. He has reconciled us to God by his death, Paul says, back in the first chapter, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil de- deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And he canceled our debt, Paul says, by his own death in our place. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We hear echoing through Colossians this language of redemption, of purchase, of canceling debt. And Paul elsewhere is going to say it plainly. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Jesus is Lord up there over all rulers and powers and authorities. He's Lord out there over all things in creation. He's Lord in here over all the affairs of the church. And there's actually a fourth dimension to his reign that I should mention. Jesus is Lord in here, in each of us. If he's the Lord of the church and we're purchased by him to be part of the church, and just an important clarification, you don't buy your way into Christ's church by your tithes and offerings, right? He buys your way into the church by his life's blood. And if he has purchased us to be in his church and he's preeminent over the church, then he's preeminent over each of us too. He's our Lord. He's your Lord. He's elsewhere given that title, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's your Lord and he's your Lord. And he's yours, and he's yours, and he's yours. Jesus is preeminent over all. What will it mean for you to carry that truth with you out of our study of Colossians? That Jesus is Lord of all, even in here. Someone asked biblical scholar N.T. Wright what he would tell his children on his deathbed. And he said, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And he explained why. He said, the person who walks out of the pages of the Gospels to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He is always a surprise. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He is always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character. And so now I'd just like to take a minute or two and give you space to pray quietly, personally, um, and ask that question, what have I learned of Christ in Colossians? What have I learned of Christ in Colossians? So would you bow? Let's just take a minute or two of silent prayer. What have I learned of Lord Jesus, my Lord Jesus, from Colossians, and how should that follow me from this room, from this study? He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before in all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord Jesus, grant us grace to make you preeminent in our lives all the more. From this day forward, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So let's go to that second question. The first one was, what, I, what have I learned of Christ in Colossians? The second was, what does it mean for me to follow him? What does it mean for me to follow the one who is Lord over all rulers and all authorities and Lord over all creation and Lord over the church and Lord over me? What does it, what does it mean? And a good summary is found in Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He says something similar a couple of verses later in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. But the Apostle Paul is not content to leave us with some, a, such a fuzzy idea of how the Lordship of Jesus should shape us. So in Colossians, he embraces this imagery of putting off and putting on to give shape to the lordship of Christ in our lives. Like a, a caterpillar sheds its chrysalis and dons wings, like a gang member takes off the colors of his old tribe and dons those of his new allegiance, so Paul says we're to put off sin and put on Christ-likeness. And he has some very specific garments that we are to shed, to put off, and never put back on. It's quite a list. I'm going to go through it read it, and I want you to listen for yours. Is there a thing in this wardrobe that you are supposed to put off? And that's what this exercise is about, right? It's remembering what God has said to you about following the Lord Jesus in this way. So here's the put-off list, starting in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And in just that handful of verses, Paul lists somewhere around 14 different things that are to be put to death, that are to be put off, they're not to be done by followers of Jesus ever. Is there one in that list 
that you need to prayerfully work at putting off in the days that are ahead. Let me just read them over once more. Listen for yours, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Is there something there that you are to undertake putting off by God's grace? And if something has come to your mind, can I, can I challenge you to tell someone about it this week? Okay? This doesn't work well as a solo project. But you share it with someone you know and trust in our church family for prayer and for encouragement. And if you have no idea how to begin this process of putting off sin, then talk with one of our leaders. We'd be glad to sit down over a cup of coffee and talk about what that path might look like for you. Now, in like fashion, Paul paints a picture of garments we are to put on and wear every day. Listen to this list of positive commands, things that are to mark us as followers of our preeminent Lord Jesus every day. It's a rich list of beautiful descriptors of what a Christ follower is supposed to be like, okay? Again, I want you to listen for yours, the thing you are to put on. This is starting in verse 12 of chapter 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through Him. It's a list of like nearly 20 different articles of clothing uh, that the fashionable Christ followers are supposed to be wearing these days, right? And you can add to that list, that was verses 12 through 17 in chapter 3, if you want to go back to it later. You can add these other positive commands from Colossians as well. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that last one, it implies that there are outsiders that's outside of Christ who are close enough to you that they know your speech, they know 
your ways. They know whether you are gracious or not. They see your walk. Do you have friends like that? So in that list of things to put on, did you hear yours? Are you reminded of what God has been saying to you about following this preeminent king of ours, King Jesus? So let's do that again. Let's take a minute or two and just think back what I just read to you. If you need a place to look in your Bibles, look at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Did you hear anything that God is saying to you, put this on? Put this on and display it to the people near you. Let's pray together. What have I learned about following this exalted Lord, King Jesus? Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together perfect harmony. Good Father, clothe us, your people, with the colors of your Son. These, these kinds of beautiful, beautiful virtues that he put on parade for us in his life. By your Spirit, Help us be more like him as we leave this study and as we leave this place. Mark us with the image of your son all the more. 